This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. We'll be looking tonight at uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, through Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. So if you would turn in your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 3. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land. A heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you've been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard. The weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly, the hills are delusion, the orgies on the mountains, 
Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this admittedly somber portion of Scripture. But as we study it, Father, we pray that it would be to us a joy because it points us to you, it points us to Christ. And, Father, we pray you would bless now our time in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time that we met together on Sunday night, we looked at that ever-popular topic of sin as it's laid out in Jeremiah and uh, chapter 2, first part of chapter 3. Well, this time we're going to look at another topic that's not exactly topping the charts of the uh, pulpits of so many churches uh, in our day, although I would have to say it is a topic that is topping the charts biblically, it tops the charts scripturally, and that topic is repentance. The loss of uh, both of these topics, of sin and repentance, in so many churches today is tragic. Not only is it tragic, it is spiritually devastating. Because until you understand sin, you cannot understand grace. And until you understand repentance, you cannot receive grace. And so by churches that are trying to be loving and understanding and sympathetic and compassionate, by avoiding the topics of sin and repentance are actually doing just the opposite. They're depriving people of what they need to be right with God, to be reconciled to God, and to understand who God is, as well as to understand, of course, who we are. Well, in our passage this evening, Jeremiah has a great deal to say about repentance. Now, if you were alert as we were reading through that passage, of course all of you were, you'll note that the word repentance doesn't even occur in this in this passage at all. It doesn't. But the meaning of repentance occurred over and over, again, at least eight times in this passage. The word return occurs over and over. Return, return, return. And really, that is, at, at, at its fundamental basic level, what repentance is all about. Repentance is making a 180-degree turnabout, going from one direction, going to the absolute opposite direction. The Greek word translated repentance has to do with a change of mind or a new way of looking that results in a changed 
life. We change our mind about sin, and we change our mind about God and His Word, and we turn from our sin to God. So the word return, as it occurs over and over, is instructing us that we need to return from our sin, return from pursuing our own ways, return from following our own agenda, back to our God, back to His Word, back to His will, back to this God from whom we, by nature, are rebelling. And even as Christians struggle against that, that, that urge of our fallen nature to run from God. We can learn a lot from Jeremiah here in this passage. Uh, as we look at it, Jeremiah demonstrates, first of all, the need for repentance, as if we really needed convincing, but he makes a very convincing case of it here, uh, describing the need for repentance. He talks about some motivations to repentance, things that should move us to want to return to the Lord our God. And then finally, in the last few verses, he talks some about the true characteristics of biblical repentance. What what is involved in real repentance, repentance that results in life. So let's look first of all in the first few verses of the need for repentance. And we see this in verse 6 all the way down through verse 12. Again, the scriptures use a graphic image here to describe the waywardness of Israel and Judah. And you'll note the distinction there. Israel, of course, was the uh, the ten northern tribes. You'll recall after Solomon, when his son Rehoboam became the king, uh, people pleaded for leniency, uh, that the king would let up on them some. And, uh, and Rehoboam uh, unwisely listened to actually the younger counselors, that he had, instead of letting up, he would be even harder on the people. And as a result, Israel split, divided. And the northern kingdom separated themselves from the line of David, uh, made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. Jeroboam, to consolidate and protect his power, established separate places of worship to prevent his people from returning to Jerusalem. Set up separate places for worship, a new capital in Samaria, and it became a separate nation, Israel. And then Judah, which was Judah and Benjamin, basically, in the south, remained with its capital as uh, Jerusalem. And so God is addressing these two nations and uh, calls attention to Judah. And Jeremiah was ministering in Judah, in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. Uh, By this time, the northern kingdom is gone. Uh, The Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom in uh, 722, 721 B.C., uh, sometime before this. But God is calling Judah to repentance, and he says, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and every green tree, and there played the whore. Now remember this graphic sexual imagery, this imagery of prostitution, is spiritual first. It depicts Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh, to the Lord her God, to her covenant God, and her involvement in these pagan religions, primarily Canaanite fertility cults. And so while the the sexual imagery is on the one hand symbolic of Israel's uh, covenant unfaithfulness, pursuing other gods, the sad fact is much of the Canaanite uh, pagan practice involved sexual activity as part of its religious ceremony. 
So uh, both uh, symbolically and figuratively in their unfaithfulness as a wayward wife to the Lord, but also uh, in terms of just the sheer activity, it was literally often of a sexually sinful nature. Uh, and so the Lord is pointing out Israel, went on every high hill, under every green tree, particularly the high places, and we'll see that again, these uh, places that were pagan shrines, places where this, this pagan worship activity would take place. And verse 7, I thought after she's done all this, she'll return. She didn't return. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And what does God do for Israel? He describes it in verse 8. He says, I sent her away. I divorced Israel. And the reference here is to Deuteronomy 24, where if a divorce takes place, there should be a certificate of divorce given, that regulation of divorce in Israel. Well, God is using that and saying, basically, I divorced her. She was adulterous, she was unfaithful, and I divorced Israel. And thought that Judah, seeing what happened to Assyria, or rather to Israel, at the hands of Assyria, would, would learn. Uh, verse 8, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I sent her away. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Now, Judah had the benefit of some good kings along the way in a way that Israel really didn't. So Judah's apostasy was somewhat delayed. She was behind Israel in terms of that downward spiral. But before Josiah, king that's mentioned here, Manasseh was a particularly and outstandingly wicked king, leading Israel and all kinds of, or Judah into all kinds of pagan uh, worship. Interestingly enough, repented later on in his life. Uh, and Josiah came with his reforms, but God had already determined Judah's end, Jerusalem's fate. Uh, however, God's pointing out here, Judah didn't fear, didn't fear God. She didn't learn. Verse 10, for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. Verse 11, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Why? Well, Israel didn't have the advantage of seeing what Judah saw. Judah saw what happened to Israel. Judah saw the punishment of God on Israel, and yet still persisted in her harlotry, in her adultery against the Lord. It was without excuse. And so God could say that treacherous Judah is even worse than faithless Israel. Well, what do we see here about the need for repentance? Well, first of all, I think it's instructive here as we're looking at this, uh, even with the sexualized imagery, which is, of course, not unique to this passage, but you often find in Scripture, that sin of any sort ultimately is idolatry. Why do I say that? I say that because any time we sin against God, any time we go our own way, any time we do something contrary to God's law, we have first set ourselves up in God's place. We have set ourselves up as the one to determine what is right and what is wrong. And that is idolatry. We have set ourselves on the throne rather than acknowledging that God is the one who reigns on the throne. And ultimately, sin is spiritual unfaithfulness. Ultimately, any sin is spiritual idolatry, spiritual adultery. Uh, Even if it involves no sexual sin actually, it is a form of adultery because we are turning from the Lord our God to whom we are to be loyal as his people to making ourselves our own God. There are other things here that we see about the need for repentance. Uh, all too often we don't learn. 
from those who suffer the consequences of their sin. Live and don't learn. And we see people who suffer from their foolish choices. We see people who suffer real consequences in life from the sins that they get involved with, and yet all too often we don't learn from that. We are not warned by that. We don't fear God because of that. And we go on in our own way, in our own sins, sometimes the very same sins with this delusion that somehow that won't happen to me. Somehow I'm unique. Somehow my sin won't find me out. And yet it does. Verse 8, that was Judah's problem. She saw what happened to Israel, and yet she went on in the same sins, thinking, well, it wouldn't happen to her. Another problem with sin that indicates the need for repentance in our heart is that we too often fall into the difficulty of thinking that it is a light thing to sin against God. Verse 9 says, because she took her whoredom lightly, She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. And again, those are the artifacts of of Baal worship, the Asherah poles, again, Canaanite fertility religions. Um, She took it lightly. She didn't think it was any big deal. Rationalized away the sinfulness of her sin. We do that when we sin. We justify ourselves. We rationalize it away. It's not that big a deal. It really won't hurt anybody. Whatever. But that's doing exactly what Judah did here. We minimize it. We make it, out, make it out to be a light thing to sin. And then all too often, unfortunately, we do repent, but superficially. Look at verse 10. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Now notice. Judah did, at least in some fashion, return to the Lord. And there may be a reference here to the reforms that took place under good King Josiah, where there were reforms taking place. They discovered the book of the law. Uh, They reinstitute the Passover uh, and basically try to bring reform, try to get rid of the high places, these pagan worship sites, and bring reform to the land. And that may be exactly what Jeremiah is referring to here. They repented, but it was superficial. You see, it is, has always been true, and it's true now, that the government cannot legislate righteousness. Josiah came in, and his intentions were good. His heart was right. He is commended as a good king in Judah. But try as he may, get rid of the pagan places as he might, change the laws as he would, reinstitute the Passover as he would, one thing he couldn't change was the hearts of the people. And so while there was this, this reform... God could refer to it as being something superficial, something outward, something that ultimately was a pretense, because the people in their hearts really preferred the pagan Canaanite fertility rites. I don't think it's it's coincidental that's what's involved because of their sexual nature. I think there was a real pull toward that, a very sexualized situation. I think there was an attraction and a pull uh, that was there, apart from the religious aspect of it, uh, but certainly their 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 reforms, their change, God describes here as a sham, it was a pretense. I struggle with that, and I think when we sin against God, when I know I'm guilty of something, you know, we should go to the Lord and say, Lord, I repent of that. I hate that. I want to turn from that. We should do that, but I also think we should ask our question: the question of our hearts, is this real? What's really going on with my heart? 
Is that just going through the motions? Or is it genuine repentance? We'll look at the, the difference in just a few minutes. But first of all, we find pointed out here the need for repentance. We look at Israel, we look at Judah, and if we look carefully enough, all too often we see our own hearts. We see ourselves uh, in our idolatry, in the tendency to minimize sin, in our unwillingness to learn from the downfalls of others. All of these things, the tendency to repent in a superficial way, uh, and yet not in reality. Well, let's look then just a little bit at motivations for repentance. As, uh, as, as Jeremiah has set the stage here describing their sinfulness, so much of our text is taken up with pleading for the people to repent. And as he does so, the Lord through Jeremiah offers a number of incentives, a number of reasons, a number of motivations that they should repent. And we pick up again in verse 12. Uh, the Lord says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say... Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. Return, faithless Israel. And notice he's speaking to Israel. And it's as if Judah's kind of overhearing this. And ultimately it is turned toward Judah. Uh, But he's speaking toward the north, speaking actually to those who have now been scattered in exile. Uh, Return, faithless Israel. What's, What's the first motivation that's here? Well, first motivation is the character of God, specifically the mercy of God. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. There's a play on words, return, faithless Israel. The Hebrew words, return, faithless, sound similar. Uh, One commentator tried to kind of capture that in English. Uh, Come back, backslidden Israel. Kind of captures the same sound that you get in, in the Hebrew. Come back, backslidden Israel. Return, faithless Israel. Why? I won't look on you in anger. I am merciful. Well, maybe God won't take us back. Maybe he'll reject me. The Lord says, come back to me. Return to me. Because I am merciful. My anger won't last forever with you. Be merciful. But what do they need to do? Verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled, that you scattered your favors, you were promiscuous, you've not obeyed my voice. What you have to do is just come back to me, acknowledge that you did these things in genuine reality, acknowledge that you sinned against me without minimizing, without rationalizing, and you will find mercy. The first motivation that the Lord gives here is his own mercy. Come back to me. I am merciful. And certainly, we who live in the days of the new covenant should have the assurance even more than Israel had of God's mercy. We're the ones who can look back and see the cross and see God's character there, that he gave his own son to pardon us. You know, it's the devil who comes and says, you know, God's going to be angry with you. He's, He's lost patience with you. The Lord says, return to me. My anger won't last forever, and I will show mercy. So the mercy of God is a great motivator to know that when we return to him, genuinely acknowledging our sin, our rebellion, that God is merciful and merciful to us in Christ. Another motivation, in addition to the mercy of God, is the, is the, uh, the, the future that we have with God. Look at verse 15. It says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you've multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered amiss, shall not be made again. 
And notice again, in those days, verse 17, at that time, verse 18, in those days. This is looking ahead. This is looking uh, toward that messianic age that is to come. Looking toward the new covenant that Jeremiah himself talks about in, in chapter 31. Uh, but the Lord is promising some great things, giving them shepherds who will faithfully feed them. Um, that they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. What is that all about? Well, the ark, of course, was the, the, the box that God had told them to build. It contained the Ten Commandments. It was, it was, it, it resided in the, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. But the problem is, too often, uh, Israel began to think externally. The box was symbolic of the presence of God and God's covenant with them. But in their thinking, too often the box became God. Remember 1 Samuel 4, where they were in all that trouble with the Philistines and, uh, and getting defeated. And they thought, well, what we'll do is take the ark with us, you know, and uh, we'll win for sure that way. Uh, and so they do. And they're cheering as the ark comes out to go to the front lines, and the Philistines are terrified. They say, what's going on? Well, a god has come into the camp. Oh, no. Well, we'll have to fight really hard because a god has come into the Israelite army to fight for them. Well, they do fight really hard, and lo and behold, they win. And they steal, they capture the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, Israel is just is devastated. Um, they you know, set, set the Ark in there with Dagon, and Dagon falls down before the Ark and keeps setting them up and keeps bowing down. Sort of a humorous, and I think intentionally humorous, scene. Uh, but Israel, Israel's problem was their confidence, not in God, but in the Ark. And so what he's saying here is that they'll no longer have this, this physical object, this, this relic, to center their confidence on. They won't even rebuild it. They won't even remember it. He's describing our day. We don't have that box. We don't need that box. We have something better. We have the Spirit of the Holy God himself living in our own hearts, living with us. At that time, verse 17, Jerusalem we call the throne of the Lord. All the nations gathered to it. No more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. House of Judah, join the house of Israel. One people, they shall come from the land of the north, the land I gave your fathers for a heritage. The future that God has for us is a motivation. In their day, um, looking forward to that messianic age, in our day, we're in that age. We experience the reality of what he's talking about here. And yet, we too anticipate that messianic age in its consummation, in its fullness, in the new heavens and new earth. And what a motivation to repentance that is, to think of the future that God has for his people. That we not miss out on that. That we not be a part of those who inherit that. The mercy of God, this future with God, the heart of God. Verses 19 through 20. God, uh, in verse 19, I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. That's not the first time that, that phrase, my father, has occurred. Look back over in chapter 3, verse 4. Have you not just called to me, my father, you are the friend of my youth? Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil you could. Yeah, they cried out, my father, you know, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the Lord, whatever. But they were pursuing their own sinful desires. God says, I thought you would call me my father. We're not turn from following me, that I would be your father, that you would be my children. 
Now, God isn't saying here that he didn't know that they would rebel, that they that, that was somehow a surprise to him. But he's saying that, that was his purpose, that was his heart's desire, was that he would be their father, they would be his people, and they would be in that covenant relationship. And yet the reality, as it turned out, is verse 20, is a treacherous wife who leaves her husband. So you've been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. I like the way Phil Riken in his commentary puts it. God wanted a son like Beaver Cleaver. Instead, he got Bart Simpson. <laughs> or worse, a treacherous wife. The heart of God for his people. God desires that you be his son, you be his daughter. He desires to have that family relationship with you and to be a father to you, to provide for you and protect you and guide you. He wants you to be in relationship with him and cause you to turn from your sins and to turn from him because he wants you to be his child. The mercy of God, the future of God, the heart of God. But then also the salvation that he offers, the forgiveness, the redemption, all of that that's tied up in that. Verse 21. A voice is heard on the bare heights. Now, the heights, again, the high places, the places of pagan worship activity. Barren, bare, why? Well, it may be here a reference, again, to the situation after Josiah's reforms, when those pagan places were destroyed, they were leveled, of course, the hilltop was still there, but whatever structure, whatever Asherah pole or Baal representative was there, uh, it was scraped off. It was removed. So perhaps that's what he's referring to here, these barren heights, the bare heights. But even on that voice, on, on those bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they perverted their ways. They've forgotten the Lord, their God. And, and this, this appeal, return, O oh, faithless sons, I will heal your faithful, faithlessness. I will heal your faithlessness. They are lamenting. They are weeping because they've turned from the Lord. And the Lord says, come back to me. I will heal you. I will restore you. And whether, whether this are words that they spoke or words that were sort of an idealized prayer for repentance, almost as if Je- uh, Jeremiah himself is giving them the words to say, you know, here's, here's the sinner's prayer. Just you need to pray these words from your heart. We don't know. But they certainly read like an ideal prayer for repentance. Let's look at it. The middle of verse 22. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion. The orgies, the Hebrew word means commotion, the reference to the pagan activity, the orgies on the mountains. Dear friends, the very essence of sin is delusion. I've said before over and over again, quoting Eve, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Every time we sin, we have been deceived. Every time you sin, you've bought the lie. The hills are a delusion. Truly, and the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored. Their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters. Sin is so wasteful. It's destructive and it's wasteful. It wastes our lives, our time, our energy, our resources. Let us lie down in our shame. Let us 
let our dishonor cover us. For we've sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Recognizing their sin, responding to the Lord's offer to heal their faithlessness. Return to me, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. We come to the new covenant, even mostly just in the gospel of Matthew. Come, follow me, Jesus says, Matthew 4. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Uh, Come and share in your master's happiness. Come to the wedding banquet. Revelation 22. Come, whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Come to me, I'll give you living water. The same God who makes that appeal is there in the flesh in the New Testament saying, Come to me, come to me, come to me, and I will heal you. I will feed you. I will quench the thirst of your soul. Same God pleading, Come to me, come to me, and I will heal your faithlessness. The motivations for repentance, the mercy of God, the future with God, the heart of God for us, salvation, the forgiveness, the healing that God offers us, all should motivate us not to listen to the accuser, but to run to God in genuine repentance. Well, what does genuine repentance look like? If Judas was a pretense under the reforms, what does it really look like? Well, we see the characteristics of real repentance uh, here in these closing Verses. We've already looked at verses 24, uh, well, verse 24 there, uh, and 25, which uh, describe one aspect of real repentance, one characteristic, and that is a deep sense of shame, a truly heartfelt sense of, of shame. Look at verse 24. From our youth, the shameful thing has devoured. Uh, verse 25, let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. A real aspect of repentance, real repentance, is a, is a tremendous sense of guilt, a tremendous sense of shame, a tremendous sense of having dishonored God. That's something that we can't put on. That's something we can't conjure up or make up. That's something that comes from within. It has to come from the heart. And those are the words Jeremiah puts it in. That is what they should have felt. And should be feeling. So first, a deep sense of shame. Second, an evident change in behavior, a change in character. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, the nation shall bless themselves in him and in him shall they glory. What's he saying? Well, it says, if you're returning, you should return to me. Uh, you should remove these detestable things from my presence. You don't waver. And if you do these things too, Genesis 12 is going to start to be fulfilled in you. That you will be a blessing not only to yourselves, but to the nations as they see the reality of my grace in you. Real repentance always involves a change. A changed life. Not perfection, but change. It does make a difference. Real repentance means that we get rid of those things that cause us to stumble, that we uh, turn from those things in which we sin and do whatever is necessary in order to begin to obey the Lord. It may involve getting someone to hold us accountable. It may involve uh, confessing our sins and making ourselves vulnerable in that way to another person. 
uh, in order to bring about change. I've, I've quoted this before. I don't know where this statement came from, and it's not absolutely true, but I think there is truth in it, that if you want forgiveness for your sins, confess them to Jesus. If you want victory over your sins, confess them to another person. Uh, and James certainly supports that, confessing your sins to one another and, and helping one another to live in obedience to our Lord. Sense of shame, a change of character, and most importantly, a change of heart. Look at verses 3 and 4. The Lord says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart. So men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, circumcision, of course, was the covenant sign, but there again they had externalized, making the sign itself the thing rather than the symbol of the reality, which indicated a heart for God, a heart from which the sin had been cut away, a heart that had been made clean for God, for that was what circumcision symbolized the removing of sin, but they forgot that. They made it external. And you, you see that, of course, carrying over in the New Testament with Paul and Galatians and so forth. Well, once again, God is saying, I want your hearts. I don't want religious activity. I don't want the appearance of change. I want hearts from which sin has been cleansed by my grace, hearts that serve me and know me. In other words, I just don't want the appearance. I want the reality that you love me and you are loyal to me and committed to me. Or to put it in terms of a marriage, which is exactly what we've had here, the Lord doesn't want a wife who appears to be the model faithful spouse and yet is committing adultery. He wants his people to be that wife whose heart is for her husband, who loves her husband, is faithful to her husband, not just in appearance, but in heart, in reality. Characteristics of real repentance, sense of shame over our sin, change of character in our lives, change of heart before God. And ultimately, only God is the one who sees the heart itself. We may see the change in one another, but it's God who sees the heart and what's really going on there. The passage closes with a warning, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Uh, Jesus speaking with an eye toward this passage when he spoke of that that uh, fire that will not be quenched and the worm that would not die, the agonies of hell. God is saying, return to me, repentance with these characteristics, or my wrath will go out. Those are the options, that we return in repentance to the living God or that we endure the wrath of the living God. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87 asks, what is repentance unto life? They answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. My exposition of this text in Jeremiah pales in comparison to that succinct, concise statement that could have been taken from these very verses that we have been looking at. Every element that we have found in these verses is present in the Catechism's answer. What is repentance unto life? But notice it begins by saying repentance unto life is a saving grace. And is everything related to grace. That means it begins with God. 
You and I cannot conjure up or work up repentance in our hearts. That is something, whether it's for the first time when someone becomes a believer, or for those who've been walking with Christ for a long time, a genuine sense of repentance, the reality of repentance, is something only God can give. Yes, if you sin, go to God and say, this was wrong, I acknowledge it, I repent of it, I ask your forgiveness. But we also need to pray, Lord, grant me a repentant heart. Grant me the reality of repentance. Show me my sin that I might feel the shame of it. But at the same time, show me your grace that it might flee to you and be transformed, be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We do pray, Father, that you would give us genuine repentance in our hearts. Father, we pray that we would turn from sin to Christ, turn from sin to cleansing, to obedience. Father, we pray that you would grant us this grace to hate our sin, to see it and be repulsed by it as you do, and to walk with you in your grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.